Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Read my lips. No new passes. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and her allies have prevailed. There is not a black America and a white America and Latino America and Asian America. There's the United States of America. Make America great again. I'm Matt Schneider with Eye in the Triangle, bring you This Week in Politics for WKNC 88.1 HD1 Raleigh. First, let's start with a question. What happens when a 700-page spending bill gets enacted into law without one elected official reading it? The media doesn't see what's in the bill. The rank-and-file members of Congress don't see what's in the bill. Only the leaders of each party who negotiated it, signed it, and then released it 10 minutes prior to the public having any idea what's in the bill. Rand Paul made a well-rehearsed floor speech pointing out all the problems and inconsistencies of Washington, holding up the bill's passage and effectively shutting down the government for a brief while. What he didn't do was point the finger at himself. See, Kentucky is a large beneficiary of federal dollars, and I don't see Mr. Paul turning those down. Our guest today is Dr. Anthony Solari, an adjunct professor of political science at NC State University and also the proprietor of his own lobbying firm. Solari ran legislative affairs for former Treasury Secretary Janet Cowell, and we will run a separate segment next week detailing his experiences as a lobbyist. I spoke with Dr. Solari the day after a brief government shutdown about the current political climate. Here's part one of our conversation. Oh, gee, well, look, look, thanks for that introduction. It's very kind. It's uh, one of the things that makes teaching a, a real joy is to have students like you in my class. So, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, I appreciate being here. Uh, tidbits about me, I don't know what to say. Uh, I've been teaching at NC State, really, uh, on and off, mostly on, since uh, 1987. And... Uh, State's really kind of my home. I've been at a number of other universities, but um, you know, I've really uh, enjoyed teaching at NC State, and students are great here. And so, you know, it, it's been a pleasure and a joy for me. Um, in addition to being a, a a teacher here, an instructor here, you're also a lobbyist. That's right. I, so um, I'm an adjunct professor here, actually, and uh, my my day job, so to speak, is over the last several years has been to lobby the General Assembly. I was uh, director of government relations for Janet Cowell when she was state treasurer during her term of office. Prior to that, I lobbied for the, uh, the state Smart Start program, and so. Um, you know, it's really I'm lucky in that way because uh, I always felt I get to kind of do political science, you know, kind of engage in politics and government and teach political science. The way I I think what you see going on in our political system today is really the culmination in some ways of of long kind of developing trends in our in our political system. Um, yeah, without redoing the course, right? Uh, I mean, my approach is that there has been a dominant voice in our political tradition, which is the classic kind of uh, liberal capitalist kind of ideology, right? Um, we have a capitalist economic system. We've got a liberal political order. Liberal, and so listeners understand how I'm using that term, not in the contemporary Edith Warren, Bernie Sanders sense of liberal. It's classic liberal 
uh, in the sense that you create a government that's a limited government that leaves a large private realm open to you know folks doing as they wish, right? So you have a large private realm of freedom with limited government. That was a political philosophy, uh, really, in many ways, of the Federalists at, at our founding. That's the dominant tradition. But I also argue there's a second voice in our tradition, uh, uh, a much more communitarian, uh, public-spirited uh, kind of uh, approach. It, it starts with the Puritans. You see it in the, in the anti-federalist uh, kind of response to what the federalists were doing. You see it in Thoreau and Emerson. Uh, you see it in the communitarian literature in the United States, whether it's conservative or liberal communitarian li- literature. Um, so you've got a, a, a dominant kind of capitalist, privatistic, private sector kind of dominant um, limited government um, approach, and then you've got another approach which really sees government as a solution to problems, uh, a much more kind of, in a sense, self-sacrificial for the public good approach. I, you know, I, I'm really kind of summarizing in a way. Um, and I think what you see going on today is, a, is in some ways, a culmination of that tension. Uh, you see it on the left. Uh, there's, uh, it, It's interesting, right, because... Um, Conservative, uh, social conservatives like, um, oh, uh, well, Douthat in the New York Times is more libertarian, but David Brooks in the New York Times, um, you know, is, is well aware of the ways that the economic system has tended to kind of undermine traditional values and, and so forth. Liberal communitarian folks are, are aware of that. So you get, there's a real tension between the way the economic system's operating in our country and, and more kind of traditional values and institutions. I think that's that's the culmination of a, of a long tradition. Uh, and also, I think what you're seeing is, you know, there's a lot of talk of relativism. In our right now in politics, uh, fake news, right? The discrediting of science and so forth. Um, I think that is the culmination of a, of of kind of intel, an intellectual sea change that's taken place worldwide and in the United States really since the 1930s, um, uh, where you know kind of folks who kind of developed. Uh, uh, you know, starting you know maybe with Nietzsche, working through Heidegger, working through other kind of European kind of intellectuals, existentialists, and so forth. Um, that's that stuff is kind of filtered into the United States, and so I think it's it's shaped our political culture in ways that it really are only just beginning to become apparent. Uh, uh, it's it's it, the relativism you see, the discrediting of fact, factual authority. Um, really, in some ways, the uh, what Nietzsche called the the will to power, the grand, the you know power politics. I mean, I see it on both sides of the aisle, where fact doesn't matter, uh, authority doesn't matter, winning is what matters at all costs, and you, you say whatever you have to say and do whatever you have to do to win. And you know, I, I see it in politics. I see it. I, you know, I've worked with communications professionals whose attitude is say it loud enough and say it often enough and say it in an, as many venues as you can, and people believe it. Right. And, That's- that's true, though. Well, it seems to be working. The problem for me on that is... I'll back up and say it's not true, but it seems to be working on a variety of levels. It does work, right? Yes. And it works because of the, uh, you know, what I'm trying to talk, what I'm trying to say here, an underlying cultural, yeah. intellectual sea change that's taken place in the United States over the last 30 or 40 or 50 years. You see it evidenced in communications. You see it evidenced in politics. You see it evidenced in society. Um you know, I, I think part of what's going on here, too, I, this, I, I, this is a comment I make on the opening page of my syllabus, right? 
you know, I don't, I'm going to leave the private sector out of this. You've got you have a hundred years of advertising. Uh, from, you know, the private sector, you know, falsehoods, misrepresentations, manipulation of people's emotions and feelings to get them to buy things, right, to, to, or to look a certain way or to have certain things. You know, a hundred years of that kind of manipulation, of uh, loose playing with the facts and so forth, uh, you know, it's... You, you, it really is part of what sets the groundwork for what we're seeing today. You know, it's, it's not surprising that Americans come to the point eventually where they don't know what to believe. They don't, they don't, all claims to authority, all claims to fact are kind of become suspect. And I think that uh, the way capitalism operates in the United States and the advertising operates in the United States is no small part of, of kind of, of kind of, you know, um, uh, preparing the ground for what we see going on today. I mean, I think there's other kind of intellectual and other kinds of power politics things involved, but uh, I think there's a lot of blame to go around for the relativism. So, um, it's a. I, I think it's it's dangerous. Um, it does work, as you said, right? It works because there's an intellectual climate in the public, and the culture's been shaped for it to work, in part. Um, but what I like to always say about that is. Uh, there's, a, there's an old saying that, uh, you know, you can you can make up the world to be whatever you want, right? But the real shark is the one that you can't wish away. <laughs> so sooner or later, you know, you can pretend reality is whatever it wants, whatever you want to think it to be. Uh, you can say it as many venues as you want, uh, but ultimately the facts of the matter are going to come and bite you. Uh, and so, you know, climate change for one thing, right? I mean, there, you know, there's 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 overwhelming evidence by, um, uh, by reputable authority, by scientists that you know human beings are altering the environment. We can deny it. We can, you know, say it's 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 not proven and whatever, so forth. I mean, again, based on the evidence, I think you have to kind of you know give it some credence and uh, a lot of credence and I mean sooner or later uh, you, you can deny it you can not pursue public policy that tries to deal with it but sooner or later it is going to bite you and the problem with that is that you know Shakespeare has a saying uh, in Hamlet diseases desperate grown are by desperate appliance relieved or not at all the longer you wait to address problems the worse they get and see that the real issue here for me is that you put off the solution to problems, and not just climate change, right? But in, environmental degradation, uh, poverty, uh, infrastructure—you uh, know—kind of falling apart. All these things. The longer you put it off, the worse the solutions get. I mean, the solutions become very illiberal. They become really, really uh, an infringement on personal liberty and freedom. Uh, you know, a great example of this is you know you look at you look at China, right? Uh, you know, China going back, you know, struggling with a burgeoning population, um, you know, a billion and a half people more now. Um, you, know, you know, what you become at some point, you become desperate, right, to control population. What's the solution? Well, you you know, forced abortions, right, uh, forcing people to have one child, the one child policy. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, you, if you deny or if you put off solutions to problems, the ultimate fix only becomes more drastic. And, and politically, I think that means um, those solutions involve a real infringement on people's personal freedoms. Uh, and they're, 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 the solu so the solutions to the problems of a failing democratic regime, uh, the solution to the problems of a failing uh, political system uh, are increasingly down the road illiberal ones. That's the, that's the danger. That's the, the problem. I think on that right there, we're going to end it. Because that's a very powerful 
last message. So, uh, Dr. Solari, thank you so much for spending time with me and uh, going over a variety of topics. I uh, really appreciate it, and I hope you come back again. No, my pleasure. Anytime. And, uh, you know, I was, thanks for having me. Dovayai, no probayai. Trust, but verify. And to the C students, you too can be president of the United States. Obama. Hello, thank you for joining us here at WKNC 88.1's Eye on the Triangle. This is Andre Corbett here. And today I have with me a special guest. I have the leader of our Club Quidditch team. Hi, everybody. Michael Brown, captain of the NC State Club Quidditch team. All right. And yeah, um, Quidditch is a club sport here, like I mentioned before. And I'm going to ask Michael a few questions about it, kind of give you guys some information about it. So we'll start off here. All right, Michael. Why don't you tell the world a little bit about yourself, like what kind of, what class you are, um, major, things like that. I'm a super senior, so I've been here five years now. I am a history major, although I've tried out most of the prominent majors, such as aerospace engineering, uh, computer science, all those during my time here, settled on history. And I'm local, I'm from the Holly Springs Apex area, so I've grown up an NC State fan all my life, fourth generation NC State, so pretty much had to come here. Man, I felt my IQ points dropping a few every time you said a different major, like aerospace engineering, and then you're like uh, computer science, I think you said. Well, there's a reason I'm not in those anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, let me, um, and yeah, fourth generation, man, that's that's definitely great. Uh, I'm first generation NC State, not first generation college, but first generation NC State. But either way, I know uh, my kids will be going here whenever I do have them years from now. That's no doubt about it. So hopefully I'll have the fourth generation myself. But let's go ahead and get into uh, the basis of Quidditch really quick. Uh, for the audience listening out there, there are seven players in either team, correct? Uh, yeah, on the field at any given time, yes. Okay. So can you describe these roles and their impact on the game? So we have four main positions. Uh, first up is the Chasers. They handle the Quaffle, uh, which is a somewhat deflated volleyball, and it's somewhere between basketball and rugby. Essentially, if you imagine it as basketball where you don't have to dribble, and can tackle people, that's a rough idea how that works. Uh, the next one that handles the quaffle is the keeper. They're sort of a goalie that acts as a chaser when they're on offense. So they do have special protections on defense, but not on offense. Uh, we have beaters. They handle the bludgers, and uh, their job is to hit people with them. So they're essentially playing a game of dodgeball on top of this basketball-like game going on. And then finally, you have my position, the seeker. Our job is to catch the snitch, which is typically someone with a wrestling background with a tennis ball and a sock attached to their back. It sounds silly, but my job is to grab that, and it's way more difficult than it sounds like it is. And uh, I, went, I went to your practice the other day, too, and it, one thing I noticed is that it's very, very aggressive. So I think the phrase snitches get stitches is more applicable here than anywhere else I've ever heard it in my life. Well, at the practice you attended, that was unfortunately accurate. My eye is still in a bit of pain from that. But uh, we prefer the term snitches give stitches. <laughs> because seekers are like the that. most, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, the most at-risk position. So, uh, Michael, how long have you been in the Quidditch community exactly? Five years. Uh, five years ago, roughly, I uh, joined the NC State team. I was walking around campus. They had a table up in the brickyard. They asked me to join. They needed a seeker. I wanted to play Seeker in my mind, and apparently in theirs, it was like a 
for those of you that have seen the Harry Potter movies, when they find Harry and like, hey, you could be a good seeker, you should come play for us. That was pretty much my experience. They were like, hey, we need a seeker. I'm like, hey, I can be a seeker. And so I joined. I was pretty terrible my first year. I didn't catch any snitches, which as a seeker is pretty bad. <laughs> um, my sophomore year is when I took over as captain. Obviously, it was not based on skill uh, at the time, but rather our team was falling apart. It was mm. already suffering from a lack of attendance. So I took over as captain, and in the time since then, I've rebuilt it to a thriving community and a family uh, where we've got about 20 to 30 active members uh, that really, this is their primary extracurricular activity. When they get off of school, this is what they want to come do and the family they want to come hang out with. So that's a pretty big achievement. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. And one thing for the audience listening out there, if you guys aren't, I mean, who isn't familiar with Harry Potter? I mean, I'm sure we've all seen it, but for those, uh, for the one person under, under the rock who hasn't seen it, it's a, it's a fictional sport in within the movies that's been translated to a real-world actual sport. Of course, the rules are different. There's no people flying around unless they get hit. So that's, uh, other than that, you know, uh, Michael's here kind of talking about the game itself. Um, so back to you, Michael. Um, let me ask you this as well. Why do you feel it's so, so important to have an NC State chapter for Quidditch? Well, it's a rapidly growing sport that's infecting everywhere. There's a uh, international level World Cup every two years uh, that has about 28, 29 teams currently, but that was as of the last World Cup, so that's growing. Um, there is a major league organization that has 16 teams in the United States, Premier League that has, I believe, eight teams so far in the UK. Uh, there's about 500 college and community teams, which is huge. In fact, if I remember the statistics right, there were more Quidditch teams than football teams at colleges in the United States at this wow. point. Now, we obviously don't get the funding and uh, <laughs> the, the field exposure. space they do, yeah. but we are growing rapidly, as well as a rising high school base. In fact, uh, myself, I coach uh, youth Quidditch through the town of Cary and starting in about two weeks through a homeschool organization within Wake County. So my goal is to reach out and spread the sport through our youth as well as through college teams. I do as much work as I can with other colleges to try and get their teams up and running too uh, so that we can build our community. There is a national league called USQ that we have just become a part of this year as well as more of a local league called the Carolina Quidditch Conference mm -hmm. uh, that NC State has been a part of since they helped found it back in, I think, 2009. And... Uh, the sort of mission of that one is to try and build up these teams to be either able to compete on the national level if they won't, or to just provide, you know, a sense of community and a family uh, and an outlet to play our favorite sport. And you were saying that there's a, a the um, the Carolina Conference League, which I presume is where you guys play other colleges, or do they have to be college-based uh, organizations, or can they be externally-based organizations? So that's a great question. Uh, in the Carolina Quidditch Conference, those teams are, they sometimes include outside players, but they are for the most part all based at universities within the Carolinas and Virginia Tech and Eastern Tennessee State. However, for the National League, U.S. Quidditch, there is a division between community and college. Mm -hmm. So the teams do play each other, but they have separate uh, regional and national titles. So you will have, say, community teams. The local one that a good friend of mine and alumni of our team, uh, Eric Fazekas, is on is the Nomads. Mm -hmm. They're based technically out of Raleigh, but really all of North Carolina. Uh, they're a community team, whereas we are also based out of Raleigh, but we are obviously a school team. Mm -hmm. So while we would go to the same tournaments for the most part, we would not play each other too often, and we'd be competing for different titles. 
Right. And can you tell us some of the schools you play? Yeah. So uh, just within, say, the Carolina Quidditch Conference, schools that you guys will have all heard of, ourselves, Duke, Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia Tech, UNC Greensboro, UNC Wilmington, UNC Charlotte, App State, uh, Western Carolina, Winthrop, uh, Wingate. Actually, I think Wingate recently lost their team. But, yeah, so most of the schools you can think of that are in particular UNC system schools, Mm -hmm. but as well as a lot of South Carolina schools are in it. Uh, You also have College of Charleston and Coastal Carolina. Uh, Those are most of the CQC teams I can remember off the top of my head. Whereas when it comes to the USQ level, we're playing teams like uh, Ohio University, Pitt, UCLA is really big. We haven't played them, thankfully. They're also on the other side (laughs) of the country. UCLA is big. All of the Texas schools are big. Texas A&M and, I believe, University of Texas were back-to-back. Those two would compete for the national championship pretty much Mm -hmm. every year for about a five-year span. Wow. Yeah, Texas is huge for Quidditch, uh, whereas when you get to the major league level, it actually shifts up to Boston being the dominant power. So do you see a lot of people being drafted out of Texas to, to Boston? or? So the way our major leagues currently work right now, it's less a draft and more based on just where you live. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, the closest major league team to us is the Washington Admirals, which, as someone who hopes to play with them one day, is a bit problematic because that's a five-hour drive to go practice. Yeah. Uh, however... I have been volunteering with them recently. Uh, Last season, I was their chaser statistician. Mm -hmm. So I was reviewing all their footage uh, for them, and hopefully we'll get a chance to play with them. We're also trying to start up a major league team in North Carolina. There's currently unofficial teams in Florida and Georgia, I believe. So we will hopefully be seeing sort of a uh, a south region coming up in MLQ. Right. I know last year they were looking at it for this year or next year to add. So hopefully we'll hear some news soon about it. And um, your position as the leader of the team, um, how long have you been the leader exactly again? I, so when I took over, we had three officers at the top. They were all equal. We had a captain, a commissioner, and a president. Right. And I took the captain position, which meant my job was handling all the on-the-field related activities. Okay. As time went on, these all sort of merged into one. Uh, I believe it was either my junior or senior year, I think junior year, when I retook the mantle of president as well. So, right. And senior year and beyond, it was pretty much just uh, me and a board of officers. Uh, going into next year, though, we plan on splitting the board up back into that original three positions because mm-hmm. having done this for many, many years, it's way too much of a drain for one person. And it'll be good because I have several officers that are looking very good for these positions where you might have, say, one that's really good at outreach, so they'll, they'll take the outreach position. One that's very good at business, so they'll handle the business. And then one that can run practice, practices effectively. And so we'll be able to split that up into a uh, system that works well. Well, you know what they say. I mean, they say multiple heads are better than one, right? So why not delegate those responsibilities instead of putting pressure on one person to get it all done? I can only imagine how you did it these past couple of years, really. So. Well, yeah, it's it's been a we're, we've been slow growing because it has been so much work. But as I've been able to have qualified people to take on different roles, I've been delegating a lot more. In fact, this year has been really sort of a dry run for how these people are going to run the team in the future. I've been assigning them more and more tasks that sort of fit the role that they're going to grow into, and so far they've all been excelling. So. As soon as I am able to step down, we'll have a good crowd to take over. 
And uh, you did say that you were coming back as a coach next year, I believe? There is a lot of talk about people wanting me to come back as coach, uh, but we'll see what the team wants at that time. Mm-hmm. I would very much like to. I have ex- I've pretty much been their coach. Uh, my friend, Eric Fizikas, who plays with Nomads that we mentioned, he's been coming in and helping us out a lot. And he's a much better chaser than I am, so he's mm-hmm. been able to work with the chasers really well. Uh, but for the most part, I've been sort of coaching this team and bringing them forward since we haven't had a true coach before now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've sort of been playing this role and will probably come back and take it over if my girlfriend and the team allows me to. <laughs> so how do you, how does that mesh? If you were the coach, how would that mesh with the leadership roles? Would you defer to them or they defer to you? Or Honestly, that's sort of the biggest thing that we're going to have to work out. I have thought over it a lot and... Because as a student organization, it would probably be me deferring to them. Mm-hmm. But until we reach that position, it's going to be hard to really know. And it's probably going to involve some negotiations. But my intent is if I come back, it's their club. I'm just here at their request to help out the team. Absolutely. And Michael, as a leader, what's been the most meaningful part of your experience with the Quidditch team? Well, when I took over, we did sort of have three officers. And that's a long story, but... Suffice to say, it quickly turned into just two officers and a box of equipment. And so being able, you know, four years ago, it was me, a good friend of mine, Corey Temple, and a box of equipment that, you know, my goal was just to have one person to hand off the equipment to when I graduated, Mm -hmm. to make sure this, well, at the time, Wolfpack Quidditch name lived on. In the time since then, we have grown from two to about 30 people, with somewhere around 40 to 50 people having passed through the team some, you know, had school ramp up, some graduated, so they're not all still with us. But for the most part, we have had the team grow exponentially. I've been able to spread the word of my favorite sport with dozens of people, and it's allowed for a lot of doors to open. It's allowed us to go volunteer. We've done a lot of volunteering with Girl Scouts as well as local schools. Uh, allowed me to coach youth Quidditch, which has you know, helped grow the sport and been a great learning opportunity for myself. And being able to bring this team up from two people to 30 people, where we were two people that could barely find people to practice, we're now taking a team to the national level to compete with. Uh, We are being recognized by the school. Um, If you're hearing this now, then we've already played our home tournament, but we are having the school paint us a field on Miller Field for our tournament. And so having gone from two guys with a bunch of broken equipment to the school recognizing us and us being recognized nationally as a team that can compete is pretty nice. And not just that, too, from what I understand, that you guys are actually being covered by PAC-TV, too? Yes, we are. Uh, Again, you guys will have already uh, hopefully seen us on TV or seen us in person, but since most of you probably did not, uh, you can go back and watch our games on the PAC-TV YouTube channel, assuming it doesn't get rained out. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and on the opposite, Michael, I have to ask you this too. What's also been the most challenging part of leading the team? So the biggest challenge has definitely been myself growing in leadership. So when I took over, I definitely wanted to lead, but I didn't know how to lead. So I've also not had anyone really to guide me through this. It's been me and another guy just trying to figure things out about how to run this team. So I've made a lot of mistakes. That's just a fact. Some mistakes have unfortunately driven people away. Some mistakes brought in people that didn't really help our team. However, 
I've been able to use all these mistakes to grow and learn. And now, while I know I'm not perfect, I've definitely honed my leadership skills through you know, a trial by fire. Uh, it's worked. You know, we've survived, and now I can convey what I've learned to the next generation and have them not make my mistakes. Well, you know what they say, Michael, life is the best teacher. And uh, some things you just kind of have to learn as you go because, you know, there's nobody else to guide us. But it's good that you want to provide that leadership role to where you can keep the next uh, quote-unquote generation, so to speak, more prepared than you were when you took on the mantle. Yep, I've always tried to see myself uh, less as the hero of the story and more as the mentor. Mm-hmm. I have didn't really have a mentor myself when it came to Quidditch, so it's all been about gaining the experience I can have so that I can prepare the next generation that's going to take over after me to really excel. If I make the mistakes and they learn from them, then once they take over, our team is going to do really well. Yeah, and speaking about um, Quidditch in general, what do you think is the biggest misconception about Quidditch? Well, that uh, a lot of people don't think it's a contact sport. They just assume that it's a bunch of nerds with brooms running around. To be fair, most of us are you know into geeky things. However, uh, it is a full contact sport, as I know you saw the other day. Absolutely. Where it can get pretty brutal. Um, but even though it's so contact heavy, it doesn't have to be for every position. Uh, we accept all people from all walks of life. Uh, we don't discriminate on, uh, well, I mean, we kind of discriminate on age athletic, a little bit. Athletic ability. Athletic ability we don't discriminate on. Uh, gender we don't discriminate on. In fact, part of a big part of Quidditch is very specifically not discriminating no matter where you fall on the gender spectrum. Uh, it's Both gender and sex are very important to Quidditch, not in that we can discriminate, but in that we're actually required to have a diverse group of people on the field at any given time. Uh, what used to be the two max or two minimum rule is now the five maximum rule. So we used to have no more than or no less than two people of each sex on the field mm-hmm. has transitioned into no more than five people that identify as the same gender mm-hmm. on the field at a time. So it is a very open, inclusive sport to anyone, uh, regardless of your athletic ability or gender, wherever you see yourself fitting into the world, we can fit you into the team. And that actually kind of answers the next question I had for you. Um, basically, I was going to ask, what was the process to join the team? And um, where can people usually watch you girls and guys play? So typically, we try to practice on Miller Field on Wednesdays and Fridays and Harris Field on Sundays. When Miller Field is closed, we'll transition to Harris. So if you guys have been walking around campus and walked past Witherspoon Theater and seen a bunch of guys with hoops running around, that would be us. And yeah, so those are practices you can attend. You just walk up, say, hey, I want to learn. We'll teach you. You don't have to pay anything to learn. If you want to go around and compete at tournaments, we will ask for team dues, which are pretty low. Uh, ask us about them next year or whenever you show up because they do change based on the semester. But for the most part, as far as club sports go, they are definitely on the low end. And for the, my final question, Michael, I wanted to ask you, um, since you're graduating in a few short months, what are you going to miss most about NC State? Well... Honestly, a lot of what I'm going to miss is what I'm already missing. Uh, Since my fifth year, I am commuting from home. So it has changed my world a lot in that what I really miss now, and I know I'm going to continue missing, is just being on campus. The camaraderie you feel with the people you're living with on campus, the sense of family you have with your roommates, sweetmates, and club organizations. Once you're off campus, 
You'll try to keep those friendships alive, but as my group of friends graduated back in May, I know it can be difficult. So I'm really going to miss being on campus and being able to just call up any of my friends and say, hey, who's ready for dinner? And just being there for dinner any day of the week. I'm going to miss, you know, being able to compete in this jersey uh, for NC State. Although, hopefully, I'll be on the sidelines wearing a red blazer. <laughs> uh, but it, it's going to be uh, bittersweet at our last uh, tournament we compete in, the Carolina Quidditch Conference Championships, April 21st in Greensboro, uh, the last time I'm in this jersey. And are there any upcoming games that um, – I know I said that was the last question, but are there any upcoming games they can see you at after, uh, after during next week or – Yes, like that? but it will require a bit of a drive. Currently, we are uh, attending April 21st, the Carolina Quidditch Conference Championships in Greensboro at UNCG, and they'll have all of your local teams there. There's the, I forget what the tournament is called, but it's at the Saltwater Highland Games. Uh, for some reason, Quidditch tournaments at Highland Games have been overlapping <laughs> a lot recently. Yeah. Uh, and that's now Myrtle Beach, March 24th, so a month from tomorrow. And... Hopefully one or two more tournaments. Unfortunately, I don't have the dates or times for you yet. So you heard it here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we've got NC State's Quidditch team leader, Michael, here with us. And um, thank you so much for coming by, Michael. I mean, I hope uh, everybody feels very much enlightened. I know I've learned a lot just in this one session alone from Michael. And uh, I just want to see everybody come out and support our, our team, any team uh, that's NC State branded. You know, we're the Wolfpack. We're a pack family. That's what we do. Go out and support each other. And I love to hear Michael's story and how the Quidditch team came together and to see them prosper like they are right now. If you guys see them practice, they're so dedicated. They just want to play well, and they want to make us all proud. So if you can, go out and support them. Check out YouTube videos. Check them out on Pack TV. Uh, everything. So thank you so much for your time, Michael. Really appreciate, appreciate having you here. Again, this is Andre Corbett with WKNC 88.1's Eye on the Triangle. I'll be catching you guys next time. Take care. Hello, I'm Rachel Jones with Eye on the Triangle. This week on WKNC 88.1, I'm discussing the popular sporting and fundraising event, Play for K. Last Sunday, in honor of the beloved women's basketball coach, Kay Yao, North Carolina State University hosted its 13th annual Play for K game. Wearing hot pink to spread awareness for women's cancer research, NC State students and faculty, as well as community supporters and families, filled Reynolds Coliseum to watch the NC State women's basketball team defeat Wake Forest. Remembering the legacy of Kay Yao, Play for K focuses on raising money for women's cancer research. Founded by Kay Yao back in 2004, Play for K, originally known as Think Pink or The Pink Zone, focused on raising money for breast cancer and supporting Coach Yao with her challenging battle. Fast forward 13 years and NC State still successfully hosts its annual Play for King game, which consists of various fundraising challenges and surprise giveaways. In the past, gift baskets as well as dinners have been auctioned off with all proceeds going towards the Kay Yao Cancer Fund. This year, the NC State women's basketball team is supporting the Kay Yao Cancer Fund through a Play for K free throw challenge by pledging to donate 75 cents for every free throw made within the month of February. Both local and distance supporters can help the women's basketball team raise money for those battling women's cancer. If interested in supporting the NC State women's basketball team, you can pledge to donate online. As for the event, from the beginning to the end of the day, the stands were beaming with support for the community team and most importantly, Kay Yao. 
Immediately as I entered Reynolds Coliseum, I spotted several NC State students sporting bright pink shirts, accessories, and even body paint in an effort to raise awareness for Kay Yao and her fight against breast cancer. Throughout the entirety of the game, various facts about Coach Yao's life were shared. To my, and I assume other fans' surprise, Kay Yao was the woman who gave meaning towards the pink attire, which is directly affiliated with breast cancer awareness and research. Now, millions of people throughout the world wrap the color pink to show support for those battling breast cancer and other women's cancers. To make sure the entire arena was involved in sporting the vibrant color, pink t-shirts with Play for K written across the front were thrown out to the stands. Not only do these t-shirts continually raise awareness for her cause, but they also show the amount of community involvement in life-changing events such as the Play for K game. Moving forward in the game, halftime came along and several women lined the courts holding signs representing the amount of time that they had been cancer-free. Ranging from 1 to 25 years cancer-free, these brave women talked about the organization had touched their lives and helped them through their experience battling cancer. During this moment, I was very touched, and while these survivors told their stories, I couldn't help but think of my own aunt who fought against breast cancer years ago. On top of my aunt's experience, hearing about the struggles that these women combated really put things into perspective. One woman recalled that, although the KL Foundation may not have been the only reason as to why she is cancer-free now, it sure felt like it. Not only did these speeches impact me, but the entire crowd seemed to transition into a new emotional state. After the game, I talked to some of my friends who are members of the dance team and cheerleading squad. Experiencing the heartfelt speeches from the sidelines, my friend Maya, who is an NC State cheerleader, said, It is an incredible experience to see how many people are supporting the Play for K Cancer Fund. But what shocked me the most was that we weren't the only school wearing pink on the court yesterday. Basketball teams across all 50 states participated in Play for K in support of cancer victims all over the country. It's crazy how much one person's idea can impact an entire country. Following these speeches, two huge checks written towards the KYO Cancer Fund were presented. Combined, the total donation reached just above $85,000. On top of this, fun raffle baskets filled with goodies such as movie tickets and gift cards were given away to support the cause. Again, the arena and head coordinator of the event was overcome with hope for a healthier future. On a lighter note, the NC State dance team performed a piece to the song Man, I Feel Like a Woman, which if you ask me was very appropriate for the event and suited what the cause was about. After the dance team strutted their pink pom-poms, the basketball game continued and eventually ended with NC State taking down Wake Forest. But win or lose, the day was amazing in itself due to the amount of support shown by the local community through donations towards the fund, participation in halftime games, and attendance of the event. While my time at the Play for K game was very touching, emotional, and sad, I also found a new sense of hope for those battling cancer as well as a feeling of support between me and my NC State community. If you want to get involved, help women fight the battle against cancers, or support the KYOW Cancer Fund, you can donate online or sign up to hold your own local women's cancer event inspired by KYOW. Last week, University Theatre put on a performance of Hairspray, I attended the show, and I'm going to give a quick review of it. First, a quick disclaimer. NC State is a school that focuses heavily on STEM. While this is fantastic and there's lots of great research being conducted in those fields, I think that sometimes we forget about all the amazing art on campus. One of our goals here at Eye on the Triangle for the new year was to highlight the arts of NC State. So without further ado, I will launch into our first showcase. I absolutely loved this rendition of Hairspray. It was fun, entertaining, and kept the audience on their feet. 
For those of you not familiar with the story, Hairspray follows teenage Tracy Turnblad, a spunky plus-size teenager with a groovy hairdo in 1960s Baltimore, as she attempts to fulfill her dream of performing on live television. Every day after school, Tracy and her best friend Penny watch The Corny Collins Show, a program where the nicest kids in town show off the latest dance moves. The stars of the show are the dreamy Link Larkin and Amber Von Tussle, the queen bee of Tracy's high school. After a spot opens on the show, Tracy decides to audition, only to be rejected by Amber and her narrow-minded mom. However, Tracy isn't the only dancer turned away because of her appearance. Little Inez is also turned away because she is African-American and the station refuses to integrate. Stacy is a very talented dancer and eventually makes her way onto the show as the host, Corny Collins, looks to diversify his cast. While on the show, Tracy begins to catch the eye of Link and the two set off to help right the injustices of the old-fashioned TV station. The couple meets up with Motormouth Maybell, a prominent R&B DJ and mother of Little Inez, to stage a protest. I'll end my recap here. You get the idea of the plot, and I'd hate to spoil the play for anyone who hasn't seen it. Hairspray is a fun play, and it's hard to go wrong, but University Theatre still managed a unique and fresh twist on a classic. The set was beautifully made, and though it never changed, it represented a variety of different locations excellently. The costumes were amazing too. 1960s clothes are already fun, but members of the Corny Collins cast all had pastel clothes with outrageous colored wigs to match the get-ups. There were multiple quick changes that allowed for breathtaking costume reveals, like when Tracy and her mom go out in the town and get a makeover. If you didn't know, Hairspray is a musical, and let me tell you, those vocals were on point. Those actors can belt. My favorite number was Big Blonde and Beautiful. It was raunchy fun and very body positive. I'm no theater expert, but I've got to say, if you've got a chance to see one of the... I'm no theater expert, but I've got to say... If you've got a chance to see one of the on-campus productions, don't sleep on it. Go out and buy your tickets, and you won't regret it. The next show being put on by University Theatre is Harvey. This has been Marissa Jordan for Eye on the Triangle. Top, top, top.